Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Lip Media Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respect to Elders past and present and the Aboriginal Elders of other communities who may be listening today. Welcome to The Gays Are Revolting, a dissection of social and cultural issues relevant to gay men. We put the G in LGBTQIA+, and we're here to help you be the best G you can be. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or join our community on Facebook by searching The Gays Are Revolting. And support the show and access our after show and live streams at patreon.com forward slash gaysrevoltingpod. Hello, boys. Oink, oink. Oink. It's all four of us back in the same again. episode for the first time in weeks. I know. So I, back. I honestly wanted to stir up some rumor mills that Tom and I didn't get along. <laughs> 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 but we, you and I haven't been on the same episode for like five weeks now. You've just been like two divas and you're like, I'm not going to be yeah. like, she's there. <laughs> <laughs> like after a nasty breakup and be like, you look well. well. Yeah, I'm taking sides. I'm taking Mikey. You can have Kyle. All right. Oh. <laughs> We're the same person anyway, so... <laughs> now, to talk to us about legal issues relating to our community, Sam Elkin from the Victorian LGBTIQ Legal Service will be joining us later this episode. Yeah, and we've also got Dr. George answering your questions and providing a COVID-19 update. Mm-hmm. Uh, your questions will actually be answered in our after show, so sign up to patreon.com for that. And <laughs> questions. <laughs> and in last week's after show, we looked at the tragic passing of actress Naya Rivera from Glee. Um, so again, sign up to our Patreon um, at patreon.com forward slash the Gays Revolting Pod to check that one out. Um, but we also wanted to play a little snippet of our fellow lip media show, Hunting Season. So um, one of the hosts, um, Damask, uh, speaks on what Naya meant to her as a queer woman. Yeah, it was really moving. And I think she expressed the sadness that she felt in such a, a really beautiful way. Um, so we thought as, as she's a queer woman, we wanted to highlight her thoughts on queer representation through Glee. Um, so we're going to play a little clip from that. Not many celebrity deaths affect me. They're always sad, of course, but I don't know them. So there is a natural level of separation. I cried for Heath Ledger because he was far, far too young. I cried for Carrie Fisher because she played a role that allowed me to see myself in a character during my formative years. And I cried for Naya Rivera because she was both of those things. Too young and playing a role that allowed me to see myself during my formative years as a young queer person. Naya Rivera's character of Santana is linked to my journey as a queer woman. As her character developed, so did my first relationship and first love. I fell into my own identity and explored it alongside her character, Santana. 
There was more to her, Santana that is, that I identified with than just being a lesbian character. She had something few other queer characters had during the coming out stage. It was a confused anger. It was something I had within myself too. I was angry that I was different. There was a world of shame swirling inside of me and it made me feel very vulnerable. And instead of embracing the vulnerability and learning to love myself, what I built were impenetrable walls that if ever breached would unleash a vitriolic attack on whoever was nearby. This added to the shame. It was compounding. It's confusing to outwardly and intellectually tell yourself that there is nothing wrong with being gay, and yet you can feel within yourself a deprivation of self-love. You can see those around you who care, but it feels impossible to reach out and pull them into who you really are. Santana had this, and it was important for me to see. Now, this role of Santana wasn't an easy one to pull off, but Naya Rivera was so talented. It really was undeniable for anyone that watched Glee. Her ability to make the character of Santana a terrifying foe, but also one that carried within her the heart of what Glee initially set out to be, a show that celebrates difference. Naya Rivera played gay, but she did more than that. Firstly, she advocated for Santana. She was proud of the character and demanded more for her. She wanted her character's arc to be something of value to young queer people and to have a depth that few characters on Glee had. Secondly, she also embraced the queer community that was hungry for more representation. Heather Hogan, one of my favourite pop culture writers, spoke about how almost a decade ago now, many actors who were gay for pay were reluctant to speak to queer media, not wanting to be painted with that brush, not wanting to be pigeonholed. But Naya Rivera was different. She was happy to engage with the community, the conversations within the fandom around her characters coming out, and to be seen as an ally. I cried a lot when Naya Rivera's death was confirmed. I was sad because she was so, so important to me, but I felt really silly for feeling that way. I didn't know her, but she meant so much to me. She was a figure that I could attach myself to before I had found my own queer family. She was my community. On reflection, I know I hadn't needed that for a long time, but the importance of who Naya was, sorry, but the importance of who Naya was during those years never went away. I wanted her to know how important she was to me because she was. She really, really was. Dana Pickley, who has been speaking so beautifully about the effect Naya had on the queer community, reassured all fans of Naya's on Twitter by saying, don't think for a moment that she didn't know what she meant to you. She absolutely did. And the proof of that is in how Naya interacted and embraced the LGBT plus community and the pride with which she spoke about Santana, who we all loved so much. Ultimately, I find it hard to successfully articulate what she meant to me. Naya Rivera was someone that allowed me to see through the cracks of my own fears, which were blinding at the time, and to begin to forgive myself for my own shortcomings. I learned to be brave in love by watching Santana be fearful. I am so sorry for her family. The loss is unimaginable. She only lived for 33 years, but I do hope that they can find some comfort in seeing what a difference she made to so many people. She will certainly be missed.
And that's what I want to say. Thanks so much to Damask from the Hunting Seasons podcast for letting us play that. So Hunting Season dissects a season of TV every episode. And obviously with Damask at the helm, it does so through quite a queer lens. So please check mm-hmm. that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to quickly talk about a little something before we get into our interviews. Of course. Um, so I took a, a break from the show for a couple of weeks and I didn't, you know, honestly, I didn't even know if I wanted to really talk about it on here, but I realized through the show, it's, it's a way to kind of give a bit more weight to something, you know, mm. and, and, and mm. provide a, a kind of experience back to the community. Um, so a few weeks ago, my mother passed away quite suddenly and, and, you know, I was literally watching a horror movie, drinking beer, eating pizza, and uh, within 24 hours from getting a phone call, my mother was no longer with us. Mm. Uh, mm. But it meant I had to fly back to Adelaide where my family is and isolate with my 78-year-old father for two whole weeks. And um, the thing I, I kind of wanted to share through the show is that I realized – you know, there's this really cheesy saying, everyone is like, oh, everyone grieves in a very, in their own way. You know how people mm-hmm. say that? Mm-hmm. What I started to think was, yeah, I, I'm grieving in a way that's very different from my sister and my father um, and my half-brothers who were all heterosexual people. And so many of our listeners and, and people that have messaged us about the show were in similar situations. To me, they have either really strict Catholic Asian parents they also, like most of us, move into state, you mm. know, and start to create their own lives mm. and create their own chosen family as well. And I think that's something really unique to the gay and the queer experience. And I found it made grieving a different experience to my heterosexual family because I had this whole world that I'd built up and and that I love and and it's you boys too you know mm. and and suddenly I was back in this world that I'd kind of escaped from or I'd, mm. I'd left yeah it was just a real head fuck so uh, I I was living with my father and had no friends or family in Adelaide and half my family don't know I'm out mm. they don't listen to this show and at the same time I you boys will love you you sent me a six pack of my favorite beer and some flowers <laughs> And I was showing my dad and saying, like, hey, these are the guys for, that I do the show with. You know, this is the podcast. They, they care about you as well and they're sending you love. And, and the kind of response was like, can you just kind of maybe stay in the closet for these two weeks? You know what I mean? Like, it. it Jeez, so uh, I just want to, I don't know, I wish I fucking hate this virus because I just want to be able to give you a big hug and be in the same room as you and come around to your house and and bring you whatever you need and that sort of stuff. And it's kept us yeah. all apart for this time. And and the other thing is this fucking virus, it's, it's such an awful time to lose a loved one because on top of the regular stress that people have, you had to work out how to get through borders and all that sort of shit that you wouldn't normally have to do. So I just yeah. want to say, like, obviously all of us, but just our hearts were just broken for you. Um, absolutely it's just horrific i think you're a super strong person like yeah thank you and like I honestly you so much. i love you guys sir and and honestly one of my wishes was i uh, i'm not very earn like i'm not a very earnest person so mm. i think i would not normally say this but mm. i used to actually feel quite a little bit of a pang of jealousy because i'd heard and seen the episodes where everyone's mum's been on 
this show. Mm, yeah. They get to be a part of this world that we've created. And, and yeah. like, I would have loved to, to, you know, my in my mind, I was like, one day my mother and I will, will sort of have the relationship where she could potentially get to be a part of this beautiful thing with these super funny people who, who they're just bright as day sort of thing. Yeah, and it breaks my heart that I I didn't get to share what a wonderful person my mother was with you guys, and that she didn't get to experience what a wonderful life and and what a wonderful community we have here in in Melbourne, mm. uh, because the support that I received while I was uh, back in Adelaide was really incredible, and um, I think if we share more stories like this, it, it helps redefine them for queer people mm, absolutely it, for sure so also i sort of shout out to anyone who's had to deal with grief i i've i've never really experienced it in this way before and and didn't realize just how hard it is to navigate when mm. when your your sexuality and your whole identity is also like sort of a question with the whole thing yeah, yeah. It's a really you you know people sort of don't make that connection and you you're right. It it seems like a really obvious one now that you pointed out, but it isn't one we think of often. And as queer people, you know, some some people have um, resolve a lot of issues with their family and that sort of thing, but there are still underlying scars there yeah, quite often. For sure. And I think, you know, you, you obviously you were close with your mum, but you know, you have also talked about the issues and you sort of hinted at that today. And I think the really heartbreaking thing is that as we grow up and out and we mend these relationships, the queer person never gets an apology. Yeah. I, uh, something that was like really kind of painful. And I, I don't want this to become like a weird therapy session. I, I <laughs> promise to our listeners, I'll go back to being an idiot in like five minutes. <laughs> but like, uh, because my mother is in this very religious, highly Catholic sort of Filipino culture, she obviously wouldn't meet up with her friends and be like, oh, my, my son is like this huge faggot on this podcast mm, and mm. he's learning how to take a dick so well, you know. <laughs> uh, I was just in the closet to a lot of my mother's friends and, and even at the funeral service, which was the only thing I was allowed to leave the house for because of COVID, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, a, a few of her friends came up to me and, and said, you know, your your mother was, was really upset that you never gave her more grandchildren and, and they had no idea how hurtful yeah. they were actually being. Yeah. Oh, but sweetheart. those are the kind of unique experiences that I think only gay people have to go through where they have to really yeah. shut down every aspect of who they are for the greater grieving group. Mm. Yeah. I also just want to say my mom was a wonderful, loving person who raised me and my sister out of nothing. And, mm what she's taught me about race and 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 privilege of being here in Australia has really formed who I am as a person so uh in some ways yeah I also just want to sort of say you know I love you mum and 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 uh I I wish you got to be a part of this show and I uh, appreciate all you've done and and the community here you know loves you for that as well I think is is Mm. is the case but yeah very well said so today we're joined by another triple threat we love triple threats on this mm. show <laughs> we're joined by writer podcaster and community lawyer sam elkin 
Now, what's really exciting is Sam set up Victoria's first LGBTIQ legal service and is one of the hosts of Transdemic, a very snappy title um, that's a four-part podcast series on how the trans and gender diverse community are experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's available anywhere you listen to podcasts and coming soon to our Lip Media Network. So, Sam, firstly, thank you so much for coming on our silly little show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Sam, it's amazing that we even have a legal service for our community in Victoria. How did it come to life? Yeah, it all started actually one of my colleagues, Lloyd and um, Garth, who um, so Lloyd worked at St Kilda Legal Service with me and Garth Parkhill worked at Thorn Harbour Health and they came up with this idea of creating an LGBTIQ legal service to target the the legal needs of the LGBTIQ community because a lot of people were already accessing Thorn Harbour Health and telling their counsellors or whatever that they had legal issues. So say they were getting some drug and alcohol support, for example, and they were saying, I've got caught, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? So it was a bit of a kind of brainchild of Lloyd Murphy and and Garth Parkhill um, to come up with this idea of collaborating to create an LGBTIQ legal service. That's so amazing because those things are so sometimes intertwined, health services and mental health legal aid, you know, it just makes sense. And Mm. this month you released a report detailing some of the legal needs experienced by the Victorian LGBTIQ population. And it's something we've talked about a lot is the different types of discrimination that we face being a minority group. Firstly, in in regards to employment, do we actually see much in the way of things like unfair dismissals or, um, you know, workplace, you know, these kind of work workplace legal issues, particularly for trans and gender diverse people? Yeah, we definitely do. Um, That's been a big part of the legal work that we've been doing over the last two years. So Mm. all kinds of LGBTIQ people can experience those kind of issues. So we've had gay men um, or men who have sex with men um, being discriminated against in the workplace, um, particularly either in regional areas or in particular kind of small communities where there's still high levels of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, um, particularly in like migrant communities. Yeah. Um, there's There's been some cases that we've done there to support uh, gay and same-sex attracted men. And yet the trans and gender diverse community um, still certainly experience high levels of discrimination in the workplace. So We suffer from um, both pre-employment discrimination, so like not getting a job at all. That's what I was going to say. It must be difficult to get past the gatekeepers in the first place. Yeah, it can be a big issue. And pre-employment discrimination is a pretty hard thing to prove um, unless managers are you know, so dumb that they accidentally <laughs> into an email saying, oh, we just don't think this person is the right cultural fit because they're X, Y, Z, which has happened before. and We've run you oh. know, very successful cases oh. where made that mistake, but usually things are more subtle than that and um, they're couched in terms like, yeah, cultural fit and just not the right look for our organisation and things like yeah. that. So it can be really hard to successfully litigate matters like that Mm. but areas that we've been more successful in is you know I mean I say successful but it's always when somebody's had a bad situation so uh lawyers were so ghastly but um (laughs) yeah you know matters where say for example somebody's been terminated um from their employment after asking to have access to a gender neutral bathroom or wanting a particular name on their name tag like 
you know, to affirm mm. their, their gender in the workplace, asking for their boss to use they, them pronouns. Um, all of these kind of situations, unfortunately, have led to people being sacked in the workplace. And, and that's when we come in to try and help people fight for their rights to, if not go back to the work, at mm. least be compensated for the wrong having been done to them. Thank God yeah. for that, I see. <laughs> um, we've also talked about housing discrimination on the podcast uh, with LGBT plus people. Is there data to suggest that queer people may be discriminated against when it comes to things like housing and rental applications? Look, I think that housing is a big issue for our community and certainly with the impact of COVID-19 at the moment, it's only gotten more difficult. We've definitely had plenty of people that have needed support at VCAT, which is the tribunal that you go to if you're being evicted, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Good old so, VCAT. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not not the place that most people want to be, but if you are going there, do give us a ring. Yeah, we've we've definitely seen people face rent arrears matters, um, noise and nuisance matters, or just be like hounded out of their residence altogether through being kind of bullied and victimised by groups of neighbours, yeah. which is a really big problem that doesn't have a very simple legal solution to it at the moment because we don't have any vilification laws that extend to LGBTIQ people in Victoria at the moment. So that's um, something that we've been working on indirectly to try and help people with their housing. Um, Because, yeah, we've had people, older people, people in regional areas, trans and gender diverse people, all talking about that situation of just like often being in an apartment building and just being hounded by a whole group of neighbours until they have to leave. And then you break the lease, you end up further in debt. You know, it's it's not great. Yeah. It feels so insidious too, uh, mm. especially with that lack of legal, like clear-cut legal protection. Same with things like cultural fit. That phrasing just like it's my my yeah, spine do a little tingle. <laughs> as, as a minority, you know exactly what it means when someone quotes cultural fit as a difference. But luckily, you also work in the law reform space. Uh, just in May this year, we saw, I, I believe it was in Victoria, that uh, trans and gender diverse people uh, can more easily change their gender identity on their birth certificates. And you were actually present for one of those debates in Parliament. Um, as a trans person, how does it feel to have uh, your own identity and, and the the body that you have become a uh, topic of discussion or a, a topic of political debate it, it must be hard to to kind of switch gears between your your lawyer brain and yourself you know yeah it was really surreal and in many ways kind of I feel very ambivalent about these moments because you know Labor had the numbers and we were really confident that it was going to get passed but we mm. still had to sit through listening to you know members of parliament that were arguing against the amendment and, um, you know, saying really (laughs) hurtful things. Really awful stuff. Mm. Yeah, like they've got the floor, they've got the right to do it. That's what our democracy says can happen. And, you know, being corralled into this little part of parliament, just having to be silent and watch it. It's not easy to go through those things. And particularly when you want to celebrate a win um, and you want to you know, represent your community and have a happy news story on the TV. But you've just had a day of listening to um, horrific pe- people saying really awful 
things mm. about you. It is kind of hard to put a happy face on at the end of the day and then celebrate. And I guess you've just got to take the long view with this stuff and realise that, you know, a change is is hard and that, you know, people have been fighting for this for 20 years. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was an amazing win. And now that we're, <laughs> now that I'm not sitting in parliament sitting anymore, I'm actually happier than I was then, I have to say. Yeah, I couldn't imagine having Oof. it's 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 similar to the feeling around uh the marriage equality, you know, postal yeah. vote. It when your own identity and who you are as a person is suddenly a topic for other people to discuss basically whether so they cool. like it or not. It it's for lack of a better word, just a real yucky thing to have to <laughs> sit through. Absolutely. And there is literally no trans people speaking in parliament, you know, like we don't have mm. any trans God, so literally just all people speaking for you. All cisgender people oh. like having a debate about it. And yeah, it feels it feels very unfair um, yeah. in those moments. Um, and Sam, you also work on legal issues surrounding how the law intersects with someone's HIV status. What kind of issues like do you have to tackle with that? Yeah, this is something that I learned heaps about on this job that I didn't know a lot about before. Um, definitely immigration law and HIV has been a huge issue. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, people might not know, but um, so international students or people on other kinds of temporary visas, if they're HIV positive or if they become HIV positive, then there's this whole health waiver process that you have to go to where you basically have to demonstrate that you're not going to be a financial burden on the healthcare system in Australia, which is so deeply stigmatising and awful. And I just had no idea that that happened. And um, unfortunately, it's still the case that here in Victoria, you know, an international student might become HIV positive while studying here. And that can mean that, you know, they don't get their visa renewed, say, if they want to do like another year of study they'll look at their HIV status and that will lead to a rejection. So it's an incredibly upsetting thing that, you know, we really do need (laughs) some law reform around and Mm. um, it comes up in family violence matters as well. So people disclosing people's HIV status without their consent, um, you know, I would argue is a form of family violence in some cases. So it comes up in that space as well. Yeah, I mean, around disclosure and the Public Health Act, I mean, this is all, you know, very much a topic of debate at the moment around COVID-19 and how you actually try and get people to do things that are more safe, but then the problem of using criminalisation. Um, so I imagine that it's quite a triggering moment for a lot of HIV positive people that have been through the kind of decriminalisation of HIV status reforms and just hearing it all come back up again through yeah. COVID-19. So it's an interesting time and, and a difficult topic that, that needs a lot more work. It's almost sobering to hear because to an extent we live in our north side Melbourne bubbles and and we're very self-affirmating to, you know, it's it's very easy to have a pretty picture of the world, but delving into the world of what actual laws are in place to protect our rights as people and citizens, and you realize, oh God, Mm. you did actually mention it quite briefly there, which is family violence. And I feel like that's a topic that is gaining more space within our community and we're sort of learning how to discuss this a bit more openly with each other. Can people seek um, help from your service if if they're living with uh, some form of family violence or abuse? Is that a service that you also provide? Yes, we represent both applicants, so, um, you know, alleged victims of family violence and also 
respondents, so people that have been accused of engaging in family violence. So we help both sides, um, yeah. not at the same time. It's going to be a party to one matter or the other. Yeah, family violence in the LGBTIQ community is a huge issue in the same way that it's a big issue in the um, cisgendered and, you know, heterosexual community. It's, it's a big problem and people need help at certain times and they need respectful and inclusive services and unfortunately they don't always get that so the typical Mm. experience you know that came up time and time again was uh, same-sex attracted women going to the police and wanting to you know report family violence and it not necessarily being taken as seriously as it might have been if it was a a heterosexual relationship because of implicit bias within the police not necessarily taking either emotional forms of family violence that seriously or not taking physical um, harm um, perpetrated by women as seriously. And, you know, they're never going to kind of just come out and say that. (laughs) Well, Mm. to be honest, sometimes they do. But a lot of the times it's just they just make a decision not to proceed with something. It goes to the bottom of the pile. They don't call you back and then things, you know, don't get done. A risk assessment doesn't get done and then your matter gets adjourned when you go to court and, it's just this kind of insidious form of discrimination that just, mm. you know, is is part of our system. And I think people just want to know that they're going to be treated equally and yeah. that's not necessarily the case at the moment. So, mm, yeah. and you've got to really be live to issues like misidentification of um, perpetrators of family violence. So this is an issue for particularly um, trans femme people. So people that may have been assigned male at birth that either identify as trans women or on the um, gender fluid spectrum, they can often be misidentified as the perpetrator of family violence when they are in fact the victim of family violence. Um, And due to, yeah, again, like stereotyping by the police, that can be a real problem where people, you know, have called the police asking for help and then they're the one that get charged with an assault and, you know, get uh, an intervention order slapped on them. So, It's something that, yeah, we have to really be alive to. And, you know, once these processes start, it's very, very hard to get things withdrawn um, and you have to be really confident and passionate advocate in these spaces to not just kind of let it happen. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Mm. so it's... It can be tiring work at times and with COVID again, the courts have adjourned so many matters off until like, you know, October, November. Um, So people are living with that uncertainty for like half a year. That's awful. Yeah, it's pretty full on what's going on at the moment in that space. So, yeah, we are here to help. Uh, What about like drugs and alcohol? Do you help people that are arrested for those offences and stuff like that? Yeah, this is a big part of the work that we do with Thorn Harbour Health. So we like literally sit in a health justice partnership with them at, over at Thorn Harbour Health and we often work collaboratively with their AOD team. So people might present to that AOD counsellor and say, oh, we've got some, I've got some charges, um, what can I do about it? And then they get referred to me. So we can help people, you know, in court if they want to plead, you know, discuss matters with the police, try and get charges dropped or, you know, reduced. That, that's the kind of work that we do all the time. But it's so much more helpful if somebody is facing drugs charges that they do want to plead guilty to. Um, 
if they are engaged with an alcohol and other drug service because it makes mm-hmm. it so much easier for us when we're doing a plea. We can say, yes, this happened, but this person is now engaged in meaningful, you know, and appropriate support. So, yeah, it's a good way of doing it. Yeah. And I think I've read that roughly 50% of the people that seek to use your service identify as having a mental health illness or a disability. And I think 16.5% were actually homeless. Is the law friendly to queer people that have these issues? Um, yes, Kyle. Question. <laughs> <laughs> question. Um, you know, I do think that the legal institutions in Victoria, like, they try and be neutral, right? Um, but unfortunately, you know, the laws and the institutions are, you know, written by a certain kind of person, you know, usually somebody who, you know, has a home, if not many <laughs> homes, mm. um, and investment properties, generally, you know, male, white, you know, able-bodied. So it's it's not surprising that the law doesn't adequately represent or deal with people that are on the margins of our society in so many ways. So there are so many ways that people, you know, experiencing complex mental health issues are either discriminated against or not dealt with particularly well in the system. I mean, you know, the rates of people that are incarcerated that have either a significant mental health condition or an acquired brain injury are just staggering. So, you know, unfortunately, the way that we deal with people that have exhibiting problematic behaviours as a result of underlying conditions is unfortunately still to lock them up in a lot of cases. And, you know, I don't believe that that's making our society any safer or any kinder or necessarily helping people in the long term. So I think that we've got a lot of a way to go to try and be more responsive to community-based programs and actually trying to get people help as opposed to just having that really cursorial approach of just, you know, slapping somebody in prison. And yet with people that are at risk of homelessness, it's a huge issue. If people, for example, get arrested And, you know, we're trying to do a bail application for somebody. The first question that a magistrate is going to ask is, where are we bailing them to? Like, where are they going to stay? And if if the person's homeless, you know, unless you can find them a program to get them into, which is really, really difficult, you know, if they've lost connection with family, um, you know, because of their LGBTIQ status, that's going to make it harder. So unfortunately, in those situations, if you don't have an address to send somebody to, like, you've got no help of getting somebody out of custody so if you're homeless or or at risk of homelessness you're way more likely to end up in court or having an interaction with the legal system so all of these things are very much becoming part of the system yeah yeah Uh, you've recently launched the roberta perkins law project uh, which is a legal service specifically supporting the transgender and gender diverse communities uh, in victoria how did you separate the different needs of the community and did you find that it was important to start a specific project for trans and gender diverse people so they got uh, catered care and needs there? Yeah, well, when I started in my job back in May 2018, I you know got the job of being the LGBTIQ outreach lawyer for the whole of Victoria, you know, which is like... Yeah, they were like, yours. <laughs> no pressure. Um, And I guess what I learned pretty early on, which I guess I suspected already, that, you know, we're different communities, right? Like people live in different areas. You know, I'm sure like in your universe, there's all different sub-branches of like gay guys living south side, north side, all over the place. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. You know, and then (laughs) if you think about that, you know, like 
lesbians or queer women like tend to kind of congregate maybe in different areas of Melbourne and Victoria, have different legal issues. People with intersex variations have very different legal needs to the trans and gender diverse community as well. So we are an umbrella and we're united by, I guess, being oppressed in some way on the basis Mm. of either our sexual orientation or sex characteristics or experience of gender. But, you know, that's all very big and different stuff and it manifests in very different ways. So Mm. I guess in the next sort of five to ten years, like I'd love to see, you know, a blossoming of different legal projects that target specific kinds of communities because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like having a health justice partnership with Thorn Harbour Health has been so good because they provide supports to different parts of the LGBTIQ community. But having said that, a lot of people go to Transgender Victoria to get peer support there. So it was just a kind of like natural inclination to want to provide that support where people are already going because, you know, you want to be where the people are. You don't want to create an unnecessary barrier to people receiving support because it's not necessarily something that people want to do like you know like it's not like organizing an arts event that has this kind of (laughs) positive kind of thing to it like people kind of you know when you've got 25 bills that are like you know and you're about to go bankrupt this is the kind of thing that like goes sounds like a party to me (laughs) like you know in your bottom drawer or whatever and don't deal Mm. with it so we're trying to get people to you know feel confident to deal with their own legal issues and so we just kind of need to be where people are and be friendly and approachable so you know, Transgender Victoria is an organisation I know well because I'm a TGV volunteer. So, you know, and being a trans and gender diverse person, it was just a kind of natural desire for me to want to partner with Transgender Victoria and provide support to my own community because yeah. I know how many barriers we face and they are different um, and it's not to say they're more important. We need way more projects like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's kind of that funny, you know, that funny thing when you talk to a heterosexual person if you had to for some reason and they're like oh you're you know and they go like oh you're gay so what is the deal with and they'll ask you something that has like nothing to do with your lived experience or your community whatsoever it's we're not a yeah one size fits all kind of community (laughs) i was gonna say like oh my god i could listen to you all day you should have a podcast but you totally do (laughs) you like fully do <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for being here tonight with us and speaking. It's uh, been really good having you. How can people access the service? Yeah, probably the easiest way is to just jump onto our website, which is lgbtiqlegal.org.au, and we've got like a contact form on there. You can see the kind of things that we we can do and. You can read our law reform submissions if you want to nerd out on LGBTQ <laughs> law reform as well. Awesome. Thank you again for coming in. That was a, a Thanks, really insightful, um, important conversation. Really and, good. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I do listen to your podcast. Um, I really enjoy it. So it's a real Yay. honor. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, Dr. George, it's so great to have you back. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, um, we've got quite a few, obviously, COVID questions that we're going to get through uh, in the main episode. Mm. And then we've got a whole lot of listener questions that we're going to do as well, which we'll do in the after show. Um, but let's start by saying oh, we spoke to you at the start of the COVID-19 crisis when it was all kicking off. And you said you were going to contract the virus. You're quite certain. Um, we've seen an influx of frontline healthcare professionals being positively diagnosed lately. So... The suspense is killing us. Uh, has Rona come knocking at your door? Do you know what? It's really weird that I haven't been infected. That that doesn't mean I haven't been affected. Yes. Um, one of one of my colleagues at work did become infected, and that led to you know we all had to go home, and the the, the workplace had to have a deep clean, and I had to learn how to use printer at home, and oh my god, it was. <laughs> Thankfully, you know, I was only working from home for like two or three days and then I was able to go back to work. So I was very mm. grateful. Oh, that's but good. so far, so good. Touch my, well, not touch my face mask. But no. Yeah, no. <laughs> so far, so good. Speaking of our chat earlier in the year, um, we were talking when the telehealth um, sort of guidelines had just been kicked off and you were talking about how wonderful that is. Mm. How has that gone? It's been interesting because like telehealth is a very different, kind of ball game so i screen with telehealth and if it's really obvious that somebody needs to be seen i.e they need an injection or they need a physical examination then as long as they're healthy and fit i will bring them into my office and do the physical review but i am surprised at how much can be done via telehealth okay now the rules have recently changed so for our non-melbourne listeners Unless you have an existing relationship with the doctor in the previous 12 months, you won't be able to get an MBS rebate on telehealth. Uh But during COVID times in Melbourne, we can continue with the telehealth with new patients and existing patients. But Uh it was a little bit tricky. I was kind of hoping that I could provide really good service Australia-wide and Mm. For the patients who jumped in when it was available, that's great. I now have an existing relationship. But for others... There may be an out-of-pocket fee, but we're still working on the logistics mm-hmm. of all of that. Well, that's really good to hear. Um, now, let's chat a little bit about masks, because obviously in Victoria this week, it's become mandatory for anyone leaving their house to be wearing one, and a lot of the Karens of Victoria are very upset. Um, so do you think that mandating the wearing of masks was a good move uh, for the state government to do? Um, it's been a... I, it's not controversial like in America where people, oh, it's my right to of not wear a mask <laughs> and to cough all over people. Like we don't, we're not like that in Australia culturally. Thank God, sweet Lord. Yeah. Today was the very first day of mandated masks. I work in the city. I saw the majority, all people were wearing masks except yeah. for one idiot who was wearing a plastic anonymous mask. And I was like, oh, good on you, man. You're really sticking it to the man. <laughs> and I'm just like, 
you know, this is something that will help protect the health of yourself and the health of others. So don't be a douche. That's it. But the important thing to remember, though, is that there are some people who are not capable of wearing a mask, and it's not who you think. It's not the person who phoned me today asking a letter of exemption because they coughed and spluttered a little bit when they walked. That's like, well, then walk slower. Mm -hmm. But we have to think about people who may not be able to put a mask on safely. Say if somebody has cerebral palsy, if they can't put a mask on, then there's a chance that they could be contaminating themselves and increasing their risk of infection. Mm -hmm. And the other group of people are a very small group of people with very severe lung disease. These are people who would normally be seen with an oxygen tank following behind them. Uh And if their respiratory function is that precarious, then they shouldn't be leaving the home anyway. I would be staying at home because home is the safest place to be. On the subject of home, here's the really important thing is that the vast majority of infections aren't happening out in public. Mm. They're happening in the lunchroom at work where you let your guard down. They're happening at home at the family gatherings where you go to Nonna's house and Nonna has to have a kiss and there's all of this interacting and people don't consider visiting grandma's house, would they wear a mask? No. Yeah. So we really kind of have to rethink this and double down on social distancing, double down on hand washing and just because you're wearing a mask, it is not acceptable to not socially distance. You still need Mm. to socially distance. Mm. Now, Melbourne's hotel quarantine inquiry also kicked off this week, and there's been an early finding that almost every case we're seeing in Melbourne, which is, you know, 400 a day some days, Mm. um, can be linked back to the hotel quarantine outbreak. How did Victoria, as what seemed to be one of the most cautious states, get into this position? Mm -hmm. Well, there's an inquiry going on at the moment that will hopefully get Mm. to the bottom of that. Anecdotally, I am friends with friends who worked in the um, the hotel systems, and we we are seeing that the the people who were employed within the within the hotels don't appear to have gotten enough training. You know, there was somebody on the news today saying that they were told that they had to bring in their own protective equipment, like masks and gloves and stuff like that. Mm. Um, also culturally, there were there were particular cultural groups that that seemed to be employed that were there were groups that were praying together. There were groups that would congregate together. Mm. You know, I think from a cultural perspective, the culture of protective and understanding of the risk, I don't think that that was reinforced strong enough. Now, before we get all too bunged up in Victoria, let us not forget that there was an OnlyFans performer who was in quarantine in Sydney who was tweeting that he was trying to be picked up by a security guard in his hotel. Really? Mm, absolutely. I didn't see this. Yes, it was one of it, it's actually an ex Melbourne OnlyFans dude who was come back from America and was in quarantine in Sydney. And, and he was tweeting that one of the security guards was trying to pick him up. But he was posting the screenshots from Grindr, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Oh. So, um, And he's like, oh, it's really hot. I might hook up with him afterwards. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know if I'd be tweeting that one. So, yeah, yeah. But the point of the matter is that the cat is now out of the bag. So we do have to hand wash, hand wash, hand wash. 
social distance, social distance, social distance. If you feel unwell, get a damn test and get the hell home. Mm. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You need to get home. Um, well, you can collect $200 now. <laughs> well, it's 300 In fact, you can catch 300 You have to do it online. <laughs> do it online. And if you flip yes. a positive, then there's more money to come, 1500 yeah. But my friend who has had COVID, it's not worth $1,500. So please don't go start licking doorknobs in the hope of getting money. No. Dan Andrews was saying yesterday in his presser that basically people are delaying getting tested. Yeah. And they're also, when they get the test, and look, I have now been swabbed three times. Wow. And it's not fun. And immediately after I get the swab, I'm like, oh, fuck, have I got enough milk in the fridge? Yes, I do. That's mm. great. And I think that people delaying the testing is for many reasons, but financial is definitely one of them. Mm. If you are a gig economy worker, then you don't have sick leave. You don't have, you don't have holiday leave. I'm essentially a... A contractor so i have to be really careful and look after myself so that's why i'm happy to be wearing my mask all the time well i'd take it off at home but yeah i'm masking as much as i can i'm totally mask for mask <laughs> yeah i've honestly like since like three four months ago since we went back to work i've worn a mask every single day because like i work with people and i touch people all the time and like from the very beginning a lot mm. of people being like oh, are you overreacting i'm like no but like i'm literally face to face with people all the time so i am all about the wearing a mask all the damn time. Mm. The the only thing I would say with regards to the mask is is that a lot of the the general public are now currently not familiar with masks and they're not mm. used to having it against the face and we have to get used to that. We also have to get used to not touching the mask, putting it on safely, taking it off safely, not touching it and it masks aren't like underpants. They don't go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You put it on, you leave it on. Yeah. If you take it off, you take it off. But I was in Lincraft the other day and this woman was behind the counter and every time she had to speak, she pulled her mask down and I'm like, oh. I can hear you. You don't oh my need God. to pull your mask down. On the topic of appropriate mask wearing, I was wondering about facial hair. Should we be like, if you've got a beard, is that going to be stopping the, the mask from working effectively and should we be shaving? Okay, if you are going to wear an N95 or a P2 mask, and they are the masks that are not recommended for the general public, they're, they're medical masks, you must shave to get a proper seal. And thus, I've shaved, so I have a proper seal. If you have a really big, big, big sort of, you know, rock and roll beard, and you just apply a face mask to it, and then sort of, I don't know what they do, they, they get like, those octopus straps and put it around the back of their head, I think. Ultimately, what you're doing is it's a cough guard. It will stop you from passing the virus outwards if you are infected. But for the air going inwards, the vast majority of the air is either going to be filtered through your beard or some of it will go through the mask. But the vast majority will be just air filtered through the beard, which makes me think, you know, if you were in a, exposed to COVID, that means you've got all of this COVID that's sitting inside your beard. So yes. as part of your daily routine, if you have a beard, I recommend that you give your beard a good shampoo mm. every day mm-hmm. and stop stroking your beard because if there's COVID in your beard, it'll be in your hands. Mm-hmm. So look, really, from a medical perspective, I don't think beards are a great thing during this pandemic. And there are people who are very emotionally attached to beards. I remember the amount of doctors that were saying, oh, I'd rather die than shave my beard. And 
they shave their beards. Yeah. But you can also design masks. There are the 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 mask that's probably the best fitting from a sewing perspective is called an Olsen mask, O-L-S-E-N mask. And you can adjust the pattern to accommodate a beard. So you just make the mask mm, longer. That's a good idea. Um, and then shove the beard inside there and tuck it on up. Um, I think maybe look up Sikh Olsen mask because Sikhs do keep their beards long as well. So of course, yeah. if they're going to know, they're going to know. So, yeah. But yeah, unfortunately, beards and masks are not a good combination and mm. beards and COVID are a dreadful combination. Now, some medical professionals are saying that um, Australia's approach to COVID, um, the suppression approach, has failed. And um, now some are suggesting that we need to pivot to an elimination approach. Um, do you agree with that statement? Okay, so let's talk about the difference between suppression and elimination. The idea of suppression was to even out the rate of infection, to keep it low mm. and to keep it evenly spread, right? And the idea is that we don't overload the hospitals. Now, at the moment, the actual infection rate here in Victoria is actually, it's not great. The numbers aren't fantastic and we want them to be lower, but they're flat. Yeah. We're not seeing a logarithmic rise, which is great. Now, the idea of elimination is like what happened in New Zealand, where everybody locked down really, really hard, you know, that they were able to sit out two cycles or maybe even three cycles of the life cycle of the virus and it was eliminated. But New Zealand is a small population and it had a very small amount of virus. Australia is different now. We have thousands of cases and I'm not 100% sure it's possible because at the moment, the way that Australia is acting and behaving is like Europe. We now have strong borders between each state. Yeah. And in some places like Victoria, we have borders between Melbourne and outside of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And to be able to effectively eliminate, those borders would have to be super, super strict. And anywhere like Melbourne, they would have to go into a very hard lockdown. And mm. I think the economics of that is difficult and the emotion of that is extremely difficult. Yeah. Emotionally, like I dealt with the first one okay. The second one, I'm finding a struggle Mm. Not that it's any different for me, other than the fact that all of my friends and family and loved ones in Sydney are posting photos of them in restaurants. And mm, it's like, sure. oh, that's hard. Mm, yeah. And exactly because of the emotional stuff is why I wonder whether perhaps we should be going a bit harder now then. Because the, I think the real reason the second one's harder is because we thought that when the first one ended, we'd be done. And now that we're in a second one, we're thinking, well, what's to stop a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one? Mm. You know, there's, there is talks of a stage four lockdown. But I wonder whether perhaps we could maybe not go to stage four, but do more of a, a 3.5 kind of a thing where well, since we are going to be in lockdown for another four weeks at the moment in Melbourne and, and Mitchellshire, mm. that perhaps we could be closing all of the retail stores and things like that. Obviously, there is a huge economic impact, but if it's going to have a greater effect, maybe in the long term, that is going to be better for mental health and economics. I, I would hope. So, but maybe the mask, the mandatory mask is a 3.5 mm -hmm. in that what we're going to be doing is that if there are people who are infected, there's less chance of them propagating the virus if they are out and about, which means that there's less in the air. It means that there's less being deposited on surfaces. So we can hope that that's part of it. But again, it all comes down to whether you choose to go and visit Nana on the weekend or not, or whether, you know, you're 
going to be ordering 50,000 nuggets that you're totally only going to be eating for yourself. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know. of course. <laughs> we, we really need people to actually follow the rules. That's yeah. the yeah. big thing is like they're there for a reason. And it's so you're not, not too con- – you don't think there's a huge concern of people like going to Kmart for just for something to do? Look, I remember when things got a little bit laxer, I, I, I really enjoyed actually just like I went to a yarn store and looked at yarn. It was like, oh, it was just really nice to participate in in that sort of activity again. Um, I think there are bored people who will, go to, who will go shopping and I don't think that's ideal. And certainly the worst place in the world, I think, would be somewhere like an Apple store where it's a high touch environment. I wouldn't. Ooh, like don't touch stuff. Um, mm. mm-hmm. So yeah, I've kind of avoided department stores, and my hands are in my pockets if I'm in those sort of places. And the minute I leave, I'm giving my hands a little squirt of sanitizer to if I have touched near surfaces. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like we are all human, and I think as humans, we definitely desire touch and intimacy. Um, do you think that it's been harder for some people to get used to the practice of social distancing than others? And is that sort of thing to be expected when we were coming into this? I think everybody's picked it up or not picked it up at their own rate. So, you know, I remember early in the piece at work that the team at the front desk would joke, they were making jokes about, oh, should we be banging? Should we just be touching feet or should we be hitting elbows? And I was, I was quite serious and said, no, we shouldn't be doing any of that. If you can touch elbows or if you can touch feet, you're too damn close to each other. And so I was a little bit snarky about that, but I felt like I was concerned that we were taking it a little bit less seriously. Yeah. I think people are going to do a risk evaluation as well. They're like, oh, well, grandma hasn't left the house, so she'll be okay to give a hug to. Yeah. You know, they're thinking that she won't be infected, but what if you're infected and you pass it on to Nana? Mm. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. Like with children, it's very, very difficult to tell a child that you're not going to give it a hug. And we need to find different ways of doing this. And I think lots of talking and, you know, Zoom chat. My God, if you'd bought shares in Zoom, man, you'd be doing all right. (laughs) Who would have known? Yeah. So it's just finding new ways and creating new cultural norms. And I think... This is how it's going to be for at least the next two to three years Mm. until a viable vaccine is found. If it is found, this is how it's going to be. And we are going to have little flare-ups and flare-downs, and that's just the nature of the biz. As long as we have people flying into Australia, Mm. then they're going to bring virus in with them. Because I know at the start it was all, oh, Chinese people are the bad people. That was absolute crap. The people that you should have been most scared of were the people who flew from America. Yeah. One of my patients got upgraded on that the world-famous United flight from America. He got upgraded to business class, and not only did he get warmed nuts in the champagne, but he also got COVID. No. So, oh, ugh, uh, now, one more question uh, for the main episode before we let you go. Last week, we saw the World Health Organization acknowledge that there is evidence emerging of airborne spread of COVID-19. Does that mean instead of dropping to the ground, particles may hover in the air? Can you sort of explain it in, in layman's terms? Yeah. So, look, when we look at the data, the, we've believed that the vast majority of virus is – well, we know that the virus is spread from particles that are either coughed or um, sneezed, right? They're the ones that they send out big droplets that are heavy and they drop to the ground 
usually before two metres. However, we also know that if you have close face-to-face contact with a person, 15 minutes is more than enough to, to, to be a high risk, or being in the same room is also considered a high risk if you've been in the same room for two hours. If we look at the studies from America that where people were infected in choirs, or if we look at some of the studies that have come from China where we look at air conditioning, we're seeing that people okay. went to a restaurant and only people on one side of the room were getting infected. And it's like, why is this? It was what? because the air conditioning was pumping all of the air to that side of the room. Uh... To become infected, you need, it's not just one particle of the virus. You need multiple particles of the virus to be able to get infected, to get an effective dose. And we are seeing evidence now that there are situations where if you get enough people into a tight enough space, i.e. the South Morang line at eight o'clock, then Mm -hmm. that's going to be enough virus particles within the air that multiple people could become infected in that situation. So this is why if you're going to be getting onto a train, we were saying wear a mask on the train. Mm -hmm. This is why I don't catch the train anymore because I'm worried that I won't be able to socially distance. And even if you are wearing a mask, if somebody's coughed or splutted onto the surfaces, there's so many high touch surfaces on a train that, you know, you just want to chop your hands off after you get off the train, mm, mm. you know, at least use an alcohol based hand sanitizer. <laughs> of course. Yes. It's probably more painful. But you certainly wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to be eating your chicken nuggets on the train. It'd be no. like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Dr. George, thank you for joining us for the main show. Um, and to all of our Patreons, uh, we will be continuing our discussion um, in our after show this evening, taking on our listeners questions. So if you're interested in that, please tune in um but otherwise thank you dr george for joining us thank you and please to the listeners the non-patreon people who are following on please (laughs) wear a mask wash your hands socially distance and if you feel unwell in any way go and get a test and get the heck home until you know what those test results are And what a show that was. Thank you so much for Dr. George for coming in and answering all those questions and especially to Sam Elkin as well. It was a very interesting chat we had. If it's not all, we have some questions that are going to be answered with Dr. George in the after show. So stay tuned for that or sign up to our Patreon. Mm. It's like the sealed section in Dolly. You've got to sign up to rip that little... (laughs) Sidebar off and see those nudes. <laughs> Were there actual nudes in Dolly? No. Uh, oh, it no. was like, oh, sexy doctor, or like, oh, so you do- can see Dolly's a like, like a Cosmo magazine. Just it was for, like yeah, Cosmo, no. yeah. And yeah, you'd yeah, just yeah. rip the side and it'd be like, learn how to give a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the word sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sign up to the Patreon. It's uh, $6 a month or something, and you get these yeah. shows. Well, until next week, everybody. We'll see you then. Bye. 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 Can I get a hiya? Hiya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.